It's all the files of the whole park. It tells you everything. Sir, he's uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Catch the rat, find the mole. It's the classic scenario of a spy thriller. There's a rotten apple, Jim. We have to find it. And last week, a top spy in the Five Eyes Collective, that is, the secret espionage and intel-sharing alliance between the US, UK, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, was caught selling top secrets. Cameron Orders, a civilian employee of the RCMP, was charged yesterday with leaking government information. Tonight, we're learning there is a wider international secret-sharing syndicate. The fallout is to be determined, but covert operations around the world, including everything from terrorism to the identities of double agents, were all potentially exposed. It was all at the hands of a guy who got his start as a cybersecurity expert and PhD. This week, we have former spy at Canada's CIA, known as CSIS, and now professor of national security issues, Stephanie Carvin, to break down the story of the Canadian rat. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. Okay, so Stephanie, this is some pretty spicy stuff for Canada. This this type of spy thriller stuff does not happen in Canada, and something that affects global intelligence. Yeah, I mean, you don't often hear the word Canadian spy internationally. I mean, we do, even I think a lot of Canadians are unfamiliar with our national security context and the fact that, yes, we do have intelligence agencies, but they're not that familiar with it. And so, you know, when a story like this breaks, there's a lot of, I think, questions about, okay, well, what is Canada actually doing in this space? How is it operating? And and what does this actually mean? Uh, for Canadian national security and and clearly also that now of our allies as well. And, and okay, Cameron Ortiz, who was he? So we're learning more about this person. I mean, actually, some of my former colleagues worked with him, and they say he was, you know, a very professional guy. Wasn't particularly flashy. Nothing really stood out about him. But he was uh, someone who had a PhD. What kind of made him interesting is that he was. Uh, the director general. So we're talking about not the top level of management, but someone who was kind of at a senior end of the scale. But he was in charge of an intelligence unit that had access to both intelligence from our domestic intelligence agency, as well as Five Eyes Partners, and uh, as well as he had access to information about criminal investigations that were taking place and was kind of sitting at the center of both of those uh, operations that are, are are going on. So I think, you know, he, he had a unique position. Bef- and, and we know that he's had a 12-year career. He's someone who started off um, working in a variety of operations. One of those uh, was anti-money laundering operations. Apparently, one of those was focused on uh, Russian money laundering operations in Canada, possibly related to um, some of the investigations that came out that were brought forward by uh, Bill Browder, who's a, a very famous advocate for sanctions on Russia. And so we know that he was involved in some pretty high profile stuff so over this 12 years. So, you know, when we when we find out someone like that in his position is or you know, seems to have been at least trying to leak intelligence, this is sends off massive red sirens, I think, across the Canadian government. And, and okay, so 
Cameron Ortiz, he worked for the RCMP, which is basically Canada's FBI. But he worked for an intelligence unit within it. He had access to not only top-secret Canadian intelligence, but top-secret intelligence across the Five Eyes. This includes U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Britain. What does this mean in terms of what he had and what he could have been selling? Right. So in Canada... The investigation of intelligence threats is done by our domestic intelligence service called the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. And then the prosecution of those uh, crimes is done by the RCMP, which, you know, the closest analogy is the FBI without, say, the intelligence function. But you need um, intelligence to be at least informing those operations at a strategic level. So this person would have had access in a walled-off unit of the RCMP to pretty much the same kinds of intelligence that would be made available uh, through our Signals Intelligence Agency, the Communications Security Establishment. And they, of course, receive information from Five Eyes Partners, so uh, the British uh, GCHQ, the American NSA, um, and as well as the Australian and the New Zealand equivalents. Uh, he would have received intelligence from, again, the Domestic Intelligence Service, CSIS, but also potentially the FBI, maybe even the CIA, uh, and the you know, again, in the other Five Eyes counterparts. And so, you know, the amount of intelligence that this guy had was considerable. But what is concerning is that this guy was very close to, you know, what we, you know, I'm going to use an old term that you often hear, which is at the sharp end of the stick. This person was helping uh, to guide the RCMP's criminal investigations of national security and serious crimes. So, for example, uh, in the one instance that we know about, it was this case where there were uh, cell phones that were being used uh, that were had been modified in order to really enhance their encryption and uh, were being used by different gangs, I believe Mexican and potentially Chinese cartels, uh, perhaps for drugs, human smuggling, things like this. And and the, so the joint investigation between the FBI and the RCMP had gathered information on what was being done by these different gangs. He seems to have taken some of that information and then sent emails to people who were under investigation and said, you know, by the way, you don't know me, but I have all of this information on you and, you know, I think we should meet. Uh, which is seems like a very bad form of operational security, but perhaps we can talk about that later. Uh, and so, so basically, he was actively trying to damage some of the most high-profile criminal organizations, uh, joint operations between Canada and the United States, because they were obviously sharing information. And the concern is, was he actually taking the information from, say, the Five Eyes, from Canadian intelligence, and offering to sell it and to, say, uh, foreign governments, to uh, terrorist organizations potentially that are operating in these countries. He would have known who those actors who are being monitored are. And right now, what we know is that he at least was attempting to do so, but we don't yet know the extent to which he was successful. And what you're talking about is is Phantom Secure, this company that, that sold right. these extremely encrypted cell phones to criminal organizations. Police say that high-level crime bosses used phantom secure technology to coordinate drug trafficking, money laundering, and even murders. Ramos himself admitted to an undercover officer that the technology could be used to locate and kill police informants. And their CEO was taken into custody and apparently he allegedly 
trying to plead out, get a better deal from the U.S. government, told the FBI that he talked to someone in the RCMP. And that's how, at least originally, the mole within the RCMP that ended up being Cameron Ortiz was discovered. Yes, and that's exactly the kind of, of serious investigation that is, is, you know, important because that was an investigation where so many other crimes are being enabled by this one company. And, you know, Cameron Ortiz, who's in this very high level of trust, is trying to damage that potentially for his own profit. We still don't know a lot about his motivations, but it seems that, you know, this was something he was willing to do probably for money. And the Phantom Secure investigation is indicative of the kind of high-level investigations that this person had access to. And that's what's so concerning is, you know, that was a very serious investigation involving organized crime, and uh, which was actually facilitating many other crimes in this country. And if that's the kind of information he has been successful in leaking over, say, a 12-year career, that is extremely damaging, not just to Canadian national security, but also uh, the the security of our uh, closest partners as well. You know, you described him uh, by people, colleagues of yours that worked with him as very professional, not exactly very flashy. Someone, I even heard, I read somewhere that he was considered quite brash and a little bit arrogant. This kind of reminds me of somebody else that was a major leaker, Robert Hansen was described almost the exact same way. More than 18 years ago, Robert Hansen was exposed to be a Russian spy. And after more than two decades as an FBI agent. Right. And so, I mean, I don't think we yet know if this individual was, in fact, uh, is similar to Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen being the famous FBI leaker who, you know, damaged uh, countless investigations over a number of years for money. And it, it's interesting. I mean, I always want to push back a little bit because people are calling him arrogant. But um, what's interesting, as I said earlier, is that he was the first civilian head of this unit as far as we know. And so you have to wonder, too, if um, some people may have found him arrogant. He was an academic. He had published articles. He was apparently known in the academic world. I, I had never encountered Mr. Ortiz myself. But, you know, so sometimes you wonder in an organization like the RCMP, there's always a, a little bit of a tension between something like uh, the officers who are, you know, the ones who went through training in a place called Depot, Saskatchewan, <laughs> which is about as far removed as it sounds from uh, a, a lot of uh, the rest of Canada. But also, and then also the civilian employees that are a part of it as well. And, you know, that's a really interesting dynamic. I, I'm going to be curious to see if that actually becomes part of the investigation or part of his motivation, the fact that, that he was a civilian in an outfit that is largely run by officers where, where that tension does continue. That's some speculation on my part, but it is interesting when you see him described as arrogant and you have to wonder if those kind of um, civilian officer tensions may have been playing a role in that description. He's also someone who spoke Mandarin, apparently fluently. He also wrote, you know, he, he presented a conference on, on critical infrastructure hacking and botnets. That really perked my, my ears up, to be honest with you. And also his, his thesis kind of focused on East Asia and he had contacts with people within the hacking community in China. I mean, does that, if, you know, you worked in intelligence. If you saw that, what would you think? I... I'm, you know, I want to just put the brakes on that just a little bit. I mean, it is curious, and I think that's certainly going to be an important lead for investigators in this case. At the same time, 
there's nothing yet to suggest that this person has leaked to a foreign government. Certainly the charges that he is under suggest that that was something that he was intending to do. But, you know, we've seen speculation that, of course, that he was involved in, um, you know, studies in this area, that he did speak Mandarin, that he was close to China. I've even just seen him described as a Chinese spy, which is we totally have no evidence for. And then, of course, others have pointed to the fact that he was working on these Russian anti-money laundering investigations as well. So is there something to that? I think we need to be careful assuming just because of his background, that is obviously where he was leaking. This may be someone who was opportunistic rather than motivated by any foreign government or uh, his contacts with foreign governments. I think that, you know, especially based on the charge that we've seen that appears to be based on this phantom secure case, that was a, a pure criminal case. So is there, you know, I, th- I don't think we should just automatically assume that China was was the target of these operations, but I can promise you investigators are not ruling it out. I mean, the thing is about this case is that this is an individual who had access to all kinds of top secrets, all kinds, you know, whether it be apparently there's, I mean, one Canadian journalist is saying that he had access to knock lists, which is non-official cover lists. So that's, you know, double agents within RCMP, possibly in other, in other nation states that are affiliated with Canada. I mean, these are really, these are all serious secrets that would also fetch you a, a hefty price probably on the black market or from a nation state. Yeah. If, if he's just emailing people, <laughs> what else did he send? I mean, it seems like he's, it seems as though, and again, purely speculative, that at least ideologically, unlike a lot of other leakers or moles, he doesn't really have much of an ideology that he's adhering to. He's just sort of, seems like highest bidder. So this is what I think we have to focus on, is the fact that, you know, this may be someone who was opportunistic rather than, Uh, say, under the thumb of a foreign government or being blackmailed or something like this. There's going to be, you know, again, this guy's had a a 12-year career, as as you say. But, you know... Pointing to the fact that this guy may have had access to knock lists uh, is indicative, again, of the fact that this guy was at really the sharp end of the stick. And it makes it different from other cases that we've had. So, for example, the other famous Canadian leaker was a guy by the name of uh, Sub-Lieutenant Jeffrey Delisle. And Delisle was a, you know, kind of low-level officer. He was a brittle diabetic, and he was stationed at an intelligence facility because he wasn't able to deploy for health reasons. And he was frustrated in, you know, the breakup of his marriage and kind of the stagnation of his career. And he sent, uh, you know, he was what they call a walk-in. He actually walked into the Russian embassy and offered to give them information for money. And so, you know, his motivations, we, we subsequently learned, were pretty much just kind of general frustration and the fact that he felt his career in life was over, so he might as well make some money out of it. But the information that he had access to was not is very different from what uh, Mr. Ortiz has access to. So, um, for example, uh, Delisle had access to assessed product. The concern that was expressed was the fact that, you know, yes, he's sending out intelligence analysis, but that the names of certain uh, intelligence officers which had approved the product that he then passed on to the Russia was on there. So he blew the cover of some officers, uh, intelligence officers, perhaps, that were uh, involved on the analytical side of, of, of producing product. This case is is really different from that. I mean, the Delilah case was bad enough, and certainly 
I recall people feeling uh, a lot of pressure from Five Eyes countries because of the amount of information that he leaked. But this is potentially a lot worse because you have a situation where an individual has the actual operation, the understanding, you know, the famous term that we call this is sources and methods, right? You often hear that being used. But there's a reason why, uh, you know, there's a reason why intelligence services are so concerned about preserving their sources and methods. It's the lifeblood of what they do. If they can't safely recruit sources, if they can't protect the methods by which they use to gather information, then that's it for their job. They, they just can't perform their function. If someone has been leaking out their sources and methods, and not just Canadian sources and methods, but that of our allies as well. This is one of the most damaging cases we've certainly seen in Canada and potentially among the Five Eyes countries. How pissed off, how, I guess, biblically pissed off do you think the Americans are right now at at Canadian Intel? On the one hand, I have to think that they are very upset because the the context here for Canada is that we are a very close intelligence partner among the Five Eyes, especially uh, with the Americans. The Americans are extremely supportive of Canadian national security efforts. In fact, many of our national security investigations start because of a U.S. lead that they then pass on to Canada. If the Americans feel that we can't keep their secrets safe, that is so potentially damaging for Canadian national security. It's it's hard to overstate that um, simply because that, you know, we are just so reliant on them. They need a, Americans need Canada to be safe for their own security. So I think they're happy to pass it on. But if that relationship changes where they start to doubt Canada a bit more, we will be in a very difficult situation. I'm not talking here of turning off all the intelligence taps, but what happens if the flow of information from that those taps begin to begins to slow a bit? I think we could see a very serious impact of that. At the same time, we have to remember, you know, there's a saying in the intelligence community, it, you know, when I worked in it, which is, you know, if you want to know what the CIA is thinking, wait three days, it'll be in the New York Times. Um, the Americans have no shortage of leakers, uh, and they've had some very high-profile cases. In fact, Edward Snowden is preparing to release a book as we speak about some of his activities. So, you know, I remember the embarrassment of Delisle went away pretty quick after the Snowden revelations. And so I think that, you know, Canada is not the only country to have suffered a major leak in this way. But our context in primarily being an intelligence consumer rather than an intelligence producer within the Five Eyes means that we can't really just point and say, well, you do this too. We have an obligation to ensure that the information that is given to us by our partners is treated safely. And I'm very much concerned that we have failed badly in this task. That's what's so fascinating about this this story is that it really is, you know, a classic tale of you think that your secrets are secrets, but then it's not some fancy, you know, piece of signals intelligence machinery that nabs a, a decoded message. It's the guy who's trying to pay off his student debt. And it's the insider threat that you can really never find yourself stopping because you never know when it's going to strike. 
I think this is a major concern, and there's going to be a lot of questions asked about how this could have been prevented. Were there technical means of doing so? Uh, but this person was is was in a position where they required access to pretty much all the information given the senior level that they were at. So I'm not even sure a technical fix would have helped here. I mean, at this, you know, at intelligence services today, you hear stories of the fact that, you know, their computers, they use like glue guns to seal up the USB drives, that they disable the uh, CD-ROMs and these kinds of things, that there's certain alerts sent if people uh, print products. Um, there was the, a famous case of someone, reality winner, who leaked certain um, information from the U.S. intelligence community a few years ago. She was caught because the information she printed, there was a design on the paper that identified her as the person who actually printed the documents off in the first place. So there are technical solutions, but as you suggest, a determined insider threat will succeed. They can engage in things like social engineering, uh, trying to earn the trust of others to give them up information. There's a lot of studies which suggest that if you just call someone and say you're with IT, that, you know, it asks, say, hello, I'm with IT. Can I have your password? Because I'm checking out your computer to make sure it's safe. People will hand over their passwords, right? So a determined insider threat will always succeed. It really is about trying to produce layered security over time. Um, you know, and that starts really when you're screening individuals to begin with. And one of the questions I have for this is that someone who's in a position like Mr. Ortiz would have gone through a security review every five years. And in fact, may have had a security review every time he was promoted within the RCMP. So why was this not caught? Uh, you know, one of the relevations that have come out in the newspaper in, in recent days has been the fact that he appears to have had $90,000 in debt. Now, it's not clear what kind of debt that was, if it was a mortgage or consumer debt. But you know, that's the kind of thing that security agencies would want to know about someone who works for them, uh, ideally trying to help manage their problems before they turn to something like selling information for a profit. But insider threats are very difficult. We have been trying to handle them ever since the Cold War. And there are still, you know, individuals that succeed in, in bringing out information simply because technical means can be overcome. And a determined um, insider threat is often very successful. Well, Stephanie, uh, thank you for breaking down the story of the Canadian mole, which sounds way less sexy than any spy thriller going. But I think when you say Canadian anything, it kind of qualifies it to a lesser standard. But <laughs> <laughs> And yet no. this is like an extremely wild story that is affecting some of the most powerful intelligence agencies in the world. But it did come from Canada. <laughs> it did, yeah, again, Canadian spy is not something you often hear in the international press, but it is a serious story that I certainly I will be following just because the consequences could be so potentially severe for Canadian national security as well as that of our allies. And it's going to be important for the RCMP to be transparent in terms of how it's handling this situation and what it will do to basically ensure that this doesn't happen again, even if that's a very difficult thing to do. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. 
Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Jason, welcome back to another edition of The, the Roundup. Roundup. The Roundup. We didn't even, we just came up with that name. It's it's very inventive. It's, it's so inventive. It's very, we very should, creative. We of should us. think of a new name. Yeah. Like the, maybe. the cyber. Cyber second? Cyber second. Okay. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll think about it. We'll, we'll think, think about, about it. it yeah. Okay, go. <laughs> okay, so um, the Navy says the UFOs in Tom DeLong's videos are unidentified aerial phenomena. Why is this important? Oh, it's important for anyone who cares about UFOs and uh, flying saucers and and the like. I believe, by the way. Yeah, of course. Uh, We've been on the Tom DeLonge beat for a while. We're huge Tom DeLonge fans. He was actually on Radio Motherboard, our old podcast, talking about aliens. We should get him back on, to be honest with you. We should. We should. So this is a bit of a wonky story. Uh, This is not confirmation of aliens, of course, uh, but if anyone remembers, uh, there was a New York Times story in like, I don't know, 2017 maybe where Luis Elizondo or Elizondo, uh, a, an Air Force dude quit the Air Force and said that the Air Force was hiding uh, UFOs and sort of revealed this big Pentagon program uh, to search for UFOs and, and this sort of thing. And as part of that, he had a video of two Navy pilots. Looking, Psychotic video. Yeah, just like looking at uh, this, uh, you know, UFO <laughs> and, and being like, what the hell is this? And uh, since then, there have been three videos, all published by Tom DeLong, former Blink-182 uh, stars, uh, UFO research outlet called To The Stars Media. Oh, and Luis Elizondo went and joined that, so he's now a part of it. And now, finally, last week, the uh, Navy made its first official public statement stating that uh, the objects in these videos are, quote, unidentified aerial phenomena, which is notable because that's the terminology that's now preferred by UFO people. So it's like... The Air Force is sort of or the the Navy is meeting uh, UFO people on their terms here. Also, can I just say? I mean, I remember when that story dropped. It was like right in the middle of like Mueller report mania, like the early parts of it, and everyone was just like looking for the Manchurian candidate. But UFOs, like the government, essentially admitted that they'd been researching it, and it they were yeah, they were I also mean, like tweaked out by it. People <laughs> it just yeah. went right under the headlines. Yeah, like, I mean, people paid a little bit of attention yeah. to it, but it's like it, it makes you think like if we find honest to god aliens, it'll be like a footnote. It'll, it'll, be like it'll still be Trump, an Trump, hour Trump. and a half, yeah, like a news cycle. Uh, Literally, the, Independence Day, a, a giant laser beam could blow up the White House, and I'm still thinking. I feel like we'll just be talking about whether uh, whether we should, you know, write some legislation to consider uh, admitting they're aliens or not, and it'll be some like congressional Ugh. bureaucratic nonsense, and it'll go away. Yeah, I mean, it's my favorite story going, to be honest with you. So, noted computer scientist Richard Stallman resigns from MIT. Yeah, this is an update to something we had on the roundup last week. Basically, he defended uh, Jeffrey Epstein and uh, 
an MIT scientist named Marvin Mitsky, and uh, he has resigned from both MIT and the uh, Free Software Association. So uh, we don't need to dwell on it, but farewell. (laughs) So this is a good one from Lorenzo. How Google changed the secretive world of dangerous hacks. Yeah, uh, everyone should go read this piece on motherboard.vice.com, but Lorenzo Franceschi Bicherai, who is on this podcast all the time, uh, just did a nice profile of Google's Project Zero, uh, the group that found all these uh, iOS exploits in recent weeks and has been kind of beefing with Apple off and on. Uh, They very rarely do interviews, so they talk to Lorenzo, which is cool, and he also talked to the former head of it who's been gone for a few years now. And it's just a a nice dive into how they sort of changed the exploit market. Uh, You know, when Project Zero started, there was a lot of debate about sort of uh, what a good timeline for ethical disclosure, and uh, they sort of said, okay, any bug we find, we give you 30 days to fix it, and if you don't fix it, we're going to drop it. And everyone freaked out when that first started, but now that's sort of just like the standard. Um, So there's that. There's also sort of like the ethics of uh, you have a company like Google that gets a lot of good press from this uh, group that finds a bunch of uh, zero days in their competitor's software and it's just something like worth thinking about and worth talking about. So go read Lorenzo's piece. It's very good. Exploit market. It's just a, a gift that keeps on giving to the news cycle, I must say. Also, <laughs> uh, it was it's a 90-day deadline, not a 30-day deadline. My bad. But let's just continue. Let's just continue. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, keep that in and then we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll move on. Yeah, you gotta be, yeah. we're all with the facts here at yeah. Motherboard. Edward Snowden. Friend of the show. Gets sued by the U.S. government. Yeah, uh, so Edward Snowden is coming out with a new book. I think the book is out. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I don't have a copy, but uh, he's been doing a lot of press lately. Uh, It's a book, sort of memoir about his life, about the leaks, about some other stuff, his thoughts and feelings. And the U.S. government sued him uh, for basically... It's not copyright infringement, but it's like, hey, you're profiting off of leaks that we own. So they are trying to get all the profits from the book. So Yeah, because basically he didn't... Cause the, 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 the way you're supposed to do this if you worked in the CIA or the NSA is you, you have to go to them and say, hey, uh, is this cool? And you give them a first rundown of it so you're not showing anything top secret. Now, obviously, Edward Snowden is not going to do that, but they sued him for it. I mean... I have to say, this was something that I heard as a possibility when I was at DEF CON, that this this was floating around. So I kind of wonder if they knew, if he and his legal team knew that this was going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not sure if this has been decided yet. Like, uh, I believe a court will decide whether the U.S. government gets the proceeds from this book oh, or yeah, not. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it, I don't think it's been, uh, it's been litigated yet. It's just, it's just been the DOJ served them, or, or, or so to speak. Right, right. So, I mean, we'll see how this plays out. I mean, a judge in the U.S. Uh, probably not going to look super kindly on Snowden just because... Uh, Likely not. Yeah. But this is interesting because, like, the book is out there. You can read it. There's obviously been books in the past where... If you go through this review process, the government will say, 
hey, you can't include this or in some cases you can't publish it at all. I believe that this was uh, something that came up a few years ago when a former military guy uh, who worked on the development of the nuclear bomb uh, wanted to publish a memoir and they were like, yeah, someone could read this book and build a bomb out of it so you can't publish it. Um, well, even though it was like super... Yeah. yeah. What's also crazy about this as well is it's so selective because you also have people leaking to, say, the the writers of Zero Dark Thirty to put in like a favorable, a favorable portrayal of the torture report and what actually went down and it was completely proven wrong. But those people aren't getting charged for anything or getting indicted for top secret infringement or whatever. No, they're not. And uh, so, it's, a, it's a curious thing that happens. Yeah, one annoying thing that has happened, though, is there's been a lot of, like, uh, pundits out there who are now like, read the book the U.S. government doesn't want you to read. And it's like, that's not quite what's happening here. No. It's like, you can read it. It's out there. You can buy on Amazon. Also, like, isn't all, you can, like, just straight up look at the leaks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, the, look the at U.S. The government didn't want you to read it. In 2015, 2013, <laughs> yeah. 2014, all the, these years since the leaks. Yeah. Uh, and now they're probably like, uh, we get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they're, they're just trying to do everything in their power to fuck him over and make his life uh, slightly less pleasant. And they've done that at every turn. So not super surprising. Yeah. And to think though, he was about to get, uh, apparently he was about to get exonerated by Obama or pardoned. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about, uh, your story, Ben, yes. a, a Ben, Ben Maku special, uh, neo-Nazis are glorifying Osama bin Laden. Yes. So Mac Lammer and I, my partner in crime found that several of these, of these neo-Nazi terror groups that have, some of them are under investigation by the FBI, uh, have been very much cribbing ISIS and Al Qaeda propaganda and a lot of their tactics in terms of. Uh, exchanging bomb-making manuals, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing they're doing is using Osama bin Laden as a figure of glorification, which is obviously very interesting because you think that groups like Adam Waffen Division, who revile people of color, also used bin Laden as, as somebody that they think is a really cool dude. So it's it was a very weird kind of story, and it really just sort of shows how a militant white nationalism is really mimicking and borrowing from and finding there's common a, ground. There's a lot with, of hypocrisy here. There's a lot, a lot of, of <laughs> there's a lot of hypocrisy. Shocking, shocking, shocker among the uh, the white nationalist race, racists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just said it, but for some reason, when I first saw this story, I was like, oh, cool. Uh, and it didn't parse for me immediately, like why this was crazy. And then you think about it for like one more second, and it's like, oh, so these a bunch of people who think that only white people should exist uh, and they are the supreme race are holding up a Middle Eastern Muslim as their sort of inspiration. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, exactly. Not to mention, like, the one, the one individual who successfully struck America in a really devastating, awful way, which kickstarted this whole war on terror, which also kickstarted the refugee crisis. There's just so many... There's so many links to it where you think that this would be bullshit, but again, you know, you're you're not talking about individuals and groups that think necessarily reasonably. Yeah, well, thank you for staying on that story. Um, I know it's not a very pleasant place to trod, but I think it is important. And that story was like 
very few things shock me these days, and that one was I was like, cool, okay, cool, 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 okay, cool, cool, like cool, cool. that's uh, that's really crazy. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's just like the the world's burning. Let's yeah. just yeah. Well, that's the end of the roundup, or Cyber Second. Yeah, let's uh, let's, let's work think on, on that. the name. Let's yeah, okay. okay, all right, farewell, farewell. This week's episode was edited and recorded by Andrew Bursick, hosted by me, Ben Maku, and produced by me. You'll hear from us next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.